Get a Bible, open it up to the book of Mark. If you do not have a Bible, then we have, uh, we have some we'd like to let you borrow. We're actually, it's really important every week as you gather in this place that you have a Bible you can look at because as we, we've just sung, um, God, we look to you. The way primarily that we look to God is by looking to his word. The written word reveals the living word. The written word, the Bible, reveals the living word, uh, Jesus And so this is what I want to do during this time. I want you to know what you'll see whenever you look at God, and that's revealed in God's holy word. So we'll be in Mark chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21. It's interesting as we've begun this series called Retrace, another look at life with Jesus Christ. Everybody have a Bible? Raise your hand if you don't. We can get you one. Okay. Everybody has one. Um, What we've seen is that Jesus has authority. He has authority over natural things. Last week we talked a bit about the storm that he calmed with his spoken word. And we've also seen that he cares about the marginalized. And what is also revealed in the Bible, and particularly in the Gospels, is that Jesus has an authority over sickness, disease, over demons. And so here as he's been walking and becoming more popular and teaching, the crowds are gathering around him. This is a part of his life that we're entering into that he's very popular. Now, you know he died very unpopular, alone on a cross. But at this point, he's very popular. People are fascinated by him. And so as we look at life with Jesus Christ, we ought to think about what was the crowd like around him. And one thing that is true about the people around him was that there were a lot of sick people. There were a lot of people that needed healing. Now, this is very different than what we experience in our day Uh, just in our everyday business. I mean, although I know you can think of somebody in your life that is sick, it's very uncommon that you would just be walking down the road and see just dozens of people ill and unable to move to get help medically, right? Because in our culture, if you're sick, I mean, you can go to one of our hospitals in this medical center and receive treatment for free. And if you didn't know that, I just saved you some money. You can do it. Um... But in Jesus' day, it was, it, was, it was very common for there to be sick people. And so if the word got out by this, about this man who had a supernatural power, who could deal not only in the natural realm, but in the supernatural realm, uh, no doubt these sick people would think, hey, there may be hope for me. And for those that could, they tried to get near him. But one thing that was also true in this culture, particularly among the Jewish people, is that the sick people were counted as unclean. And so not only were they ostracized because people didn't like being around them because they were sick, they were religiously considered unclean. They had to do something religiously to go from being unclean to clean. And oftentimes it was quite a ceremony, quite a process. And so the sick people experienced Uh, isolation socially. Oftentimes, if they were sick, they would not be allowed to touch anybody, nor would they have anybody touch them. So when Jesus is ministering among these people, when we see him come in contact with a sick person, it's uh, really interesting, and we ought to pay attention to it, which is why we're getting ready to read these verses. Although uh, we rarely see sick people, every once in a while we'll see sickness in in a place that, that we ask God to heal. So last week, I was in New York City, and um, the last night that I was there before leaving the next day, I'm in the hotel lobby, and I'm waiting because I'm meeting this other guy that's planting a church in, um, in the Bronx, and, and we're going to talk a bit about church planting. 
and, um, and I hear this, this really loud bang. And, and I didn't know what it was. New York City, I mean, I thought, like, gunshots, right? And so, um, and so I look over. It wasn't gunshot. What had happened was that this older gentleman was walking in with his wife in through, through the entryway, and uh, he'd fallen down. And, and it was a really quite a crash. And so, of course, I got up and I went over there. And the concierge, the guy that leads the, you know, you know the, the guy that helps people find where they're going and whatnot, he was freaking out. And this guy, he was a big old guy, but he's over there. And this older gentleman is on the ground going, and he's just stunned. I mean, he has these bottles of milk, and so there's just milk everywhere. It looks like he's bleeding milk. I'm like, this is really strange. And so there's like a puddle of milk, and this guy's just like laying in it, and his wife's going, oh, oh, oh. They're from England. I would try to do an English accent, but all of my accents sound um, like kind of Asian, kind of Indian. So I won't. Um, and, and so he's like, oh, she's like, oh, oh, what's going on? And so I go over there. Well, this concierge guy is trying to pick this man up. And, and he's going, oh, and this guy's on the ground like, oh, oh. And this guy's just like going, this, I mean, just grabbing him by the shoulders. And I was like, dude, chill out. Like, hold on, hold on. And um, this kind of stuff happens to me all the time. It's so strange. And, uh, and so I'm like, dude, hold on. He's like, <laughs> the concierge guy is the one that was, I was really worried about. He actually started crying. He was so panicked. He like got tears in his eyes and started crying. And so I'm like, dude, just stand over there. I was like, sir, are you okay? Well, he's, if, this is kind of funny, but if he were here, I wouldn't say it because it was funny. But so he's in the like automatic door. And so he's laying there in the door. So the door's just like closing on him, like ding, ding, ding. Like this is, he's like, I'm like, are you okay? And so, um, so he's like, ah, you know, I don't. And so I said, sir, are you okay? Did you, did you hurt your neck? Because, you know, he's laying on the ground. I'm not a doctor, but I know this. He could have broken something, his neck, and so just to pick him up. And so, and so he tries to get up, and he says, he says to his wife, I think my arm is broken. And I look down, and, um, and his arm, he's trying to get up, but every time he gets up, this part of the arm just stays on the ground. And what had happened was this part of his arm right here had just snapped. And so the pop I heard might have been his arm. And so I'm at this point like, oh, my gosh. And, um, and so, so anyway, so, so I, I, I said, well, sir, are you okay? So he really can't get up because he's kind of got himself on this arm that's just snapped. And so anytime he gets up, it, he can't, like, lift his, his arm up. And so anyway, I asked him, you know, is your neck hurt and all this kind of stuff? Uh, is Toby here? He's a doctor. Any other in a medical professional? Give me some props. I'm not a doctor, but I was like, okay, how's your heart rate? Are you breathing? And all that kind of stuff. I, I should have charged this insurance for this help. But anyway, um, and, so, and, so, um, and so finally, I, I literally have to grab his arm and, and pick it up so that he can roll over. And, and he's lying back, and of course, the, then they get the man. What had happened was he had tripped on the rug. It got folded. They put a rug in the entryway. And, uh, of course, you know what I'm thinking. I'm like, this guy's getting ready to own this hotel. And, and the whole time, this, this older gentleman, he was so gracious and so nice, he just kept apologizing to the rest of us. I'm so sorry I did this. I can't believe I did this. And the manager comes over, and he looks like a real sleazebag, honestly. And he comes over, and he's like, you know, so what's going on? And I'm like, this guy just fell. He tripped on this rug right here. And he's like... And it, then he tries to tell me to get out of the way of the door that's, like, closing. I'm like, if I get out of the way, it's going to crush this guy's head again. I mean, like, give me a break. Anyway, so he's like, okay, well, let's just get him out of the way. I'm like, dude, you better back off. And, um, and, so, and so finally this guy's sitting there. Here, here's what I'm thinking as I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, I, um, 
I, 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 like, this guy's got in serious pain. They call the ambulance, you know, and I'm, you know, I, I'm thinking to myself, like, I need to pray for healing for this guy. It's, I, I thought to myself, I need to pray for healing. Like, would this be weird to him if I pray for healing? Because it wasn't like the most spiritual, churchy kind of environment. And, um, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, if Jesus were here, like, this would be a really great opportunity for him to, like, walk in and just heal this guy. Um, and it was just kind of a moment spiritually. And honestly, I messed up. I did not pray for the guy. It was so panicked. The ambulance got there. I should have stopped and, and, and just asked him if I could pray for him. And, um, but as I, as I thought about that moment and how powerful it would have been for Jesus to walk in and, and what it would have done to all of the faith of the people in that room at this point, the entryway is like filling with people and there's people gathering outside because the ambulance is there. I imagine that whenever Jesus touched somebody in the New Testament during the first century, that the same kind of response was elicited. When there was injury that needed to be healed, Jesus walked in and healed it. Not only would they be amazed and satisfied that the ill person was healed, but their faith would have been deepened. And what I want you to see this morning is that at the center of life with Jesus Christ is faith, is the issue of our faith, this mysterious thing that we can't exactly put our finger on. It's, it's mysterious, it's within us, it's, it's something that connects us with God. It's, it's that thing in us that's, that's not easy to explain, but it's what compels us to respond in obedience to who God is. This is what I'm talking about when I say faith. I don't mean blind, ignorant, stupid faith. I mean the kind of faith that's informed because we see who Jesus is. <clears throat> Here's a story about two women in our passage. One's an older woman, woman who's been sick for 12 years, and another is a 12-year-old who's near death. So at some point in history, the same point in history, a child is born that will be uh, near death at 12, and at the same time, there's born in a woman an illness that is, makes her like a living dead person. So let's read here in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, to see the miracle. Uh, but before I read there, let, let, me, just, let me just comment one, one thing. You know, <clears throat> if you're here and you do not believe in miracles, like that something can happen beyond the natural realm, then you ought to know that your worldview, it, 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 just be aware of this, you see things through a worldview that was influenced and begun during a period of the, of, um, called the Enlightenment. John Locke is one of the um, leaders that made this movement popular, and it was actually in some ways a good move um, because what this, what, what, this, what this movement philosophically did was it called into question the traditions that people accepted blindly. And so what John Locke wanted to do was to get people to think and to use their brains. But what began to happen is that it became all about reason. And if you can't reason in your mind how something works, then it's not true. So the natural implication is that miracles can't happen, right? Because miracles by definition, happen outside of the natural law and outside of the natural realm. And what our confession is, is that miracles do happen. 
And so if you're here and you say, I don't know if I believe in miracles, just know that it's not because you're smarter than everybody else. It's because your philosophical worldview is greatly impacted by this movement called Enlightenment. In fact, 100 years after the Enlightenment during the 18th century, a response to it was the Romantic era where things like art and culture and a love for those things and the feeling that that elicited um, caused people, it was a response to this, this, this heavy emphasis on reason. And so what happened was reason and faith were divorced. And so this is why now we as Christians ha- have, are tempted to say, well, you just have to believe without being willing to think about it. But my contention is that we can believe while thinking about the claims of the Bible. So here we are in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. That's just a side note because I know there are some of you that are sort of investigating Christianity. Um, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Here's what it says. And when Jesus had crossed again in a boat to the other side, so the crowds are becoming great. He's moving back and forth <clears throat> across the waters. A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue. Just note that not all of the religious leaders hated Jesus. We oftentimes um, call out the religious people in the New Testament because of uh, Jesus rebuking them. They look religious, but inside they're dead. But not all the religious leaders, leaders hated Jesus, particularly during this part of his ministry. This man's name was Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now I want you to notice here the posture of this religious leader, as he recognizes the authority of Jesus. Now, this is significant, and it tells us something about how we ought to approach Jesus. He falls at his feet. It, this man, Jairus, is a, an elite socially. For the crowd to see this man fall at the feet of Jesus would have been stunning. Like, whoa, this guy recognizes that Jesus has an authority that outranks him. It says something to us about how we ought to approach Jesus, right? I mean, he's our friend. We do life with him. But let us never forget that our physical posture says uh, sometimes in prayer and even in worship says a lot about what we feel in our heart about who Jesus is. There's times when we ought to kneel down in our prayers. There's times when we ought to get on our face before God. That is, if you recognize the authority of Jesus. If you only see Jesus as your, as your buddy, like your homie, you don't see him for who he is. He's God in the flesh. So this religious leader falls at his feet in front of this crowd, Verse 23, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. We know from Luke's account of this that uh, this is his only child. She's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went. Jesus is on his way to, to help this little girl who's 12 years old in this culture. If she's sick and about to die as a 12-year-old, it's a great tragedy because at 12, she's almost to the age where she's going to be married, if you can believe that, a little different than today. So to, to die without being married 
at such a young age is a great tragedy. Jesus' compassion on this man and his daughter. He goes on to say, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. They pressed in on him, is what that word throng means. <laughs> we don't ever use it, but verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Imagine that this is as gross in, in terms of how it would have affected her negatively and socially as you can. This woman was very ill. There were physicians who tried to help her, but were unable to. She was very sick. In fact, going to these physicians had not helped her. It made her poor and actually made her worse. She's in a desperate situation, physically and socially. Can you imagine the shame that this woman must have felt, the embarrassment she must live with? She's, as I mentioned earlier, like any other sick person, maybe more so because not only is she sick, but in this culture she's a woman and they're already in the margins in the Jewish culture. She was an outcast, considered unclean religiously. According to Levitical law, if she touched anyone or anyone's clothes, she would render that person ceremonially unclean for the rest of the day. This is how serious the Jews considered this. Some, some years later, uh, people, particularly men, were so nervous and scared about becoming ceremonially unclean that they would not allow a woman to touch them at all or, or touch a woman for any reason is serious. Look there in verse 27. I love this verse. She had heard the reports about Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? She had heard the reports about Jesus. The same reports that were heard by the community leader like Jairus. These same reports were heard by this woman. Reports like this teacher speaks with an authority that's unique. The way he interprets the Old Testament passages comes with power and with strength. The way he ministers to the religious people and the religious leader and the way he, he, he helps the outcasts is unique. The things that he can do in his word and with his Power with his deeds are remarkable. The word had gotten out. She had heard reports. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Can you imagine the courage that this took? I mean, how many of you, I wonder, feel dirty? I mean, you ever get to that place where you've just struggled and you've, you've failed and you recognize your own sin has made you dirty before God? Maybe you can identify with this woman and just how much courage it took for her to confidently reach up and touch Jesus. She knew it would make him unclean because she was unclean. But she believed that Jesus could heal her. Isn't that beautiful? There's something here to be said, and I really appreciate Jennifer's song about just 
when things don't look so good, sometimes all that you can do is reach out and grab a hold of Jesus. She reached out, she touched his garments, believing if I could only touch his garments, I would be made well. Now, it was common, a common belief in this culture that, that um, was that if you could touch the garments of a religious person or some sort of mystic uh, healer, that you might be healed. And, and so the fact that she's trying to touch him and his garments, that's all she wants to do, is not particularly uh, special. But here's what's unique about this situation. And immediately the blood flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She experienced the power of God. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? I want you to notice how personal Jesus here is in this moment. There's a crowd around him, pressing in on him. Jesus stops on his way to a rich person's house. He stops to deal with the person that's poor in spirit and physically in need. Do you see how personal he is? As we look at life with Christ, something you need to know about Jesus is that he is, uh, he is personal. We, when we say that what we're about is a relationship, not a religion, that is true, and we see it here. We're about a religion or a relationship with God Almighty, God in the flesh. And Jesus recognizes that the power has gone out of him. What exactly does that mean? I, I don't know. Scholars debate. But the bottom line is she touched his garment and she was healed. Disciples. So he turns around and says, who touched me? The disciples look at him and say, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you. As the disciples are gathered around him, and Jesus has done what he's come to do, which is to uh, prove that he's God in the flesh, the disciples here in this moment have the hardest time seeing where Jesus is working. Now this is for those of you that are here that um, are, would consider yourselves uh, rich in faith and maybe you're a leader. You know, oftentimes when Jesus is working, all we can think about is where we want him to work, which causes us to miss where he is working. You ever have that? Do you ever find yourself going, God, why don't you just work in my finances? Or, or why don't you just work on these relationships? Or God, why don't you just heal me physically? Or God, why don't you this, do that, and whatever? When all the while, it may be that God is working, you just don't see it. I, I, really, the only solution there is that we slow down. You know, the way we talk about mission at Near Town Church is we're inviting busy people to experience the peace of life with Jesus Christ. And I, I tell you, um, one distinctive of this area of our city is the pace is exponentially greater than, than anywhere I've been before. People live at a pace that is, is suffocating. And the cost of that, for those of us that follow Christ, is that we can miss opportunities to see where Jesus is working. We rush from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. All the while, God is saying, hello, do you see me working in the life of that person you've been praying for? Do you see me working in your finances? 
Are you going to stop and recognize that I have an authority and a power? Verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now notice, this religious leader, uh, Jairus, bowed with a request. This woman bowed with awestruck gratitude. Same kind of a posture. She comes and falls down before him, recognizing his authority. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's a beautiful story. She is healed. But Jesus is on his way to do something else. He's on his way to help this sick girl. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. So Jesus' concern and compassion for this unclean woman has delayed his trip to the leader of, or to this leader's home to heal his daughter. So the people at the home come to Jairus and Jesus and say, too late. Verse 36. But however, hearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. What we're about to see is that Sometimes God delays the answer of our prayers for a greater miracle. Think about that. We say, God, I need you to work right here. And God is saying, I'm not going to work right there. I'm going to wait and I'm going to work right here. Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, weeping and wailing is significant, really significant. All those of you that have lost somebody close to you would identify with this, but in this day, it was so important religiously that there was weeping and wailing. They would actually hire professional, professional wailers <laughs> to come and to join you in your weeping and wailing. So if you cry easily, it's a job idea for you. And when he entered, he had said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her hand, taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, it's Aramaic, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, I want you to know something about Jesus. Do you notice the power in his words? This isn't a real flowery speech. He's not doing some kind of chant, some crazy movement. He simply speaks a simple phrase, and God's power courses through him to raise this little girl from the dead. We see this throughout the Gospels. As we look at what it's like to hang with Jesus and the New Testament, what we see is that he doesn't need a lot of words to get across what he wants. I, th- I think it, it, it accentuates the, this concept of simplicity in our faith. We can simply follow Jesus and listen to him simply and obey him simply. Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them not 
that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This happens a lot whenever he does something miraculous at this part. He says, don't tell anybody because the crowds are already becoming great and people are already beginning to follow him for the wrong reason, which is why he regularly has to come back and says, you want to follow me? You must take up your cross. You must die to yourself. You must repent of your sin and place your faith in me. But here what we've seen is something about Jesus, and that is that he cares about people. He sees the popular and the outcast as equal, and he's powerful. Jesus is powerful. As we talk about what it looks like to have life with Christ, this is so much more than adopting a moral law. And I've mentioned this before, and I'll say it again and again, because I feel like in our community, and particularly where we are and the kind of people we're reaching, there's so much intelligence that what we reason is that it is smart to adopt the moral law of Jesus. But I want you to know that what's going on here and in you and in us and through us as a people is supernatural. God is doing something powerful. And although I know that you're really smart and you're intelligent, I want you to know that your faith can begin to develop where your reason strengthens the part of your faith that is mysterious and unexplainable. And it's okay to say, you know, I don't know, but I believe. I don't know exactly why, but I believe. And some of you are here, and you're waiting till all of your questions get the exact answer, and you can put all the square pegs in the square holes and the round pegs in the round holes, and you're trying to figure all that out. And I encourage your questions. Keep them coming. But what I'm saying to you about faith is that it is mysterious, and it is rich, and it is deep, and it will move you in ways that cannot be explained. The miracles we see in the Bible... And the miracles we get to experience all around us, if we'll take the time to see them, the purpose of those miracles are not so that we will escape suffering or not so that these people will no longer be sick. John mentioned to me this morning an insight about this passage. They all eventually died. The purpose of these miracles and the miracles around us, again, if we'll slow down enough to see them, is that our faith in God's power would be deepened. The richness of our faith would be deepened. And the response to God would be an even greater commission to the mission of God in the world. It's important that we see God working supernaturally all around us. God uses miracles and the supernatural to point people to the uniqueness of Jesus as the centerpiece of the gospel. Let me, let me tell you somewhere that I've recently seen a miracle. Because when I see a miracle, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. Here's an example of where we need to see miracles and, and how God can use it to enrich people's faith. About 18 months ago or so, my son, Kobe, uh, twisted his ankle really bad. I mean, it was real bad. I mean, he couldn't walk. You know, kid stuff. That night, we go to bed, and it, I had spent um, the day carrying him everywhere. And um, he's a big boy. And so I was really hoping that God would heal him, um, just for my own sake. And so that night, we went to bed, and he's learning about prayer, and we just prayed together. I said, God, would you heal Kobe? 
And I knew in that moment that it may or may not happen. And what you might be thinking in your mind, I go, that's such a little thing. No, it's huge because what I've just done is put out there before my son, who at the time was about seven, that God can work beyond the natural realm and the supernatural and heal. The next morning he woke up and his ankle was fine. And our conversation was, see, buddy, God can heal. And I promise you something about Kobe. If you asked him right now, hey, can, can God do miracles? He would say yes. Why? Because he experienced something that enriched his faith in God's power. Now, will that little miracle, uh, well, I shouldn't say little, will that, will that miracle be enough to carry his faith his whole life? Maybe not, but you know what? I'm going to, as a parent, help him to see how God is working all around him. Have you seen God work a miracle in your life? Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe you're asking God for a miracle, but he's saying, delay. I'm going to delay it, or I'm not going to do that miracle, because there's something that is going to enrich your faith even more. Jennifer shared a story about uh, her um, sister-in-law, and and I know that family from a distance, and I appreciate you sharing it, because I know it's deep. Like that's a, that's a gigantic deep, hard um, story. And I promise you, all along the way, lots and lots and lots of people were praying for healing. And, um, and they weren't healed. Her husband's dead, and the child is dead. But I will never forget, as long as I live, when I was at the funeral for her husband, as I looked up in the front, and I see the um, mother, Kristen, with her hands raised, worshiping God at her own husband's funeral. I promise you this delay in the miracle enriched her faith, which in the end, this is what God wants to do. God wants to, us to experience deep, rich kind of faith, no matter the cost to us personally. He knows what's best for us. But you know, we need stories of miracles. We really do. We need stories and miracles to be told so that the faith of people can be stirred. We need to pray and ask God to move. And do not be shy in asking God to do miracles in your life because he may very well want to do it. I wonder how many of you here have something in your mind that needs to be healed. I don't mean just physically, but I mean maybe emotionally. Maybe you've got something, maybe there's something in you. Maybe it's an addiction to a drug or an addiction to money or an addiction to pornography. Or an addi- what, what is it, something in you that is just sick? Maybe what needs to be healed is your disbelief in the gospel. That's the greatest sickness, the one that will cost you the most. How many of you need healing in a relationship? Maybe you're estranged from a family member or a friend and you just want God to heal. Have you had the courage lately to ask him? Maybe what needs healing, and this is a bit of a stretch, but it's relevant to all of us. Maybe what needs healing is your finances. For you, some of you, it would be a miracle for things to 
begin to be better financially for you? Do you want to ask him? Let's ask God to, to, to grant our requests. Would you, would you bow your heads together? Just right there where you are, whatever's pressing for you on your mind, ask God to heal. For those of you that have not yet responded to the invitation of Jesus Christ for salvation, and you want to, here's what you do. If you recognize that your sin separates you from God, tell God, forgive me for my sin. I respond in faith. Now that's a miracle. What's an area that you've seen God work in your life? Maybe your marriage has been healed. Maybe there was a sickness in that relationship and you've seen it healed. Have you stopped recently to thank God, to bow down before him and just say, 